0: do you hear that everybody do you hear that that sound that is the sound of nfl field stretchers zooming down the field outside the hash marks oh yes oh yes have you noticed quietly in the context of the west coast offense There has been a rebirth of the NFL field stretcher this season. And it culminated last week. Tyree Kill, one of the NFL's signature field stretchers, six receptions, 185 yards, and two touchdowns, 30.8 yards per reception. (laughs) Right? So he's getting downfield, securing passes beyond 20 yards, but also turning upfield on short passes and gobbling up yak. Rum, 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 right? Yak monster, Tyreek Hill. So you love to see that. Tyreek Hill's yards after the catch, 351. That's number three in the NFL. And his total target distance, some call air yards, total target distance on playerprofiler.com, 1058, number 21 in the NFL. So he's pretty much top 20 in total target distance and top three in yards after the catch. That's impressive. And this is a downfield weapon being leveraged by Alex Smith. Alex Smith, your number one fantasy quarterback in week 13, (laughs) right? Alex Smith has been the ultimate fantasy tease. So week one, he's on waivers and posts a top three performance against the New England Patriots in prime time, impressing every football fan. So fantasy gamers go and pick him up, but they're not ready to start him yet. They need to see more from Alex Smith. Finally, Alex Smith has showed them Consecutive QB one performances finally convincing the fantasy football enthusiast that he's worthy of being started, and at that moment, that fantasy gamers are finally comfortable starting Alex Smith. He gives you one of those 200 yards, zero touchdowns, one interception performance, 5.2 yards per attempt. The Alex Smith we had come to know over so many years of checkdowns and a failure to throw touchdowns to his wide receivers. So then fantasy gamers quickly lose faith in Alex Smith, refuse to start him in week 13, and what does he do? Of course, the number one quarterback in fantasy. Ah, ah, Alex. But I wasn't focused on the Alex Smith performance. I was focused on Tyreek Hill and the other field stretchers across the NFL that are exceeding expectations. Have you noticed this? It is a pleasant phenomenon to witness. Yes. Boy, Tyree Kill is fast. On PlayerProfiler.com, his official forty time is four three four because he did not run at the NFL Scouting Combine, and times at the NFL Scouting Combine are typically five one hundredths of a second slower than pro day forty times. So we adjusted his pro day forty time, which was a four two nine. Others had him timed even faster. G- get out of here. Okay, just get get out of here. These ridiculous 419 times. Okay, okay. Let's reel it back into reality. 429 is amazing. It's exceptional. 434, also great, right? Like 98th percentile. It's pretty good. Tyreek Hill went from college gadget player to number eight receiver in fantasy football. In two seasons, he's made that transformation. How did he do it? Because, no, wait for it, wait for it. Athleticism matters in athletics. That's right. That's right. That's right. In the times that I have been willing to excuse away a lack of college dominance, it has been in the cases that the athleticism is exceptional. Think about Martavis Bryant. We'll talk about Martavis Bryant in a few moments. There are a handful of exceptions To the general principle that a wide receiver should be dominant at the college level. And most of them are exceptional athletes. They have to be to break the models. Because there are reasons why a player like Tyreek Hill is not a mega producer at the college level. But has the skill set to be a WR1 in fantasy at the professional level. It's possible. We exist as analysts because these possibilities exist. If there were no exceptions to the rule, my job as a sports analyst would be a hell of a lot less interesting. And every year, the biggest breakouts happen when great speed and athleticism is translated into on-field efficiency. Look what Tyreek Hill is doing. Yards after the catch, number three in the league. Yards per target, 10.6, top five. Yards per pass route, 2.49 on playerprofiler.com top five. QB rating when targeted on player profiler, 122.8, also top five. So when Alex Smith targets Tyreek Hill, good things happen. The most efficient passes on the football field are those sending the football in the direction of Tyreek Hill. It's rational for NFL offensive coordinators and quarterbacks to leverage their field stretchers, leverage their most athletic playmakers. And now we're seeing the NFL's most explosive playmakers are now scoring fantasy points at a rapid rate. Look at Week 13. Mike Wallace went over 100 yards on just five receptions. How does he do that? He's fast. That's right. Mike Wallace is still fast. As long as he's still fast, he can play the sport of football at a high level. Mike Wallace is the great undead receiver of the NFL. Just when you think that it's over, a hand... Strikes up through the dirt, and that hand belongs to Mike Wallace. He's an undead receiver because he's just too fast to die. And you think of Mike Wallace as having bad hands, stone hands Mike Wallace. Well, the problem is he hasn't been dropping passes his entire time in Baltimore. In 2016, a 2.6% drop rate. In 2017, a 3% drop rate. Positive production premium, positive target premium. This year, that production premium is higher than it was last year. The production premium is over 10 this year, and the target premium is over 20. And when Joe Flacco targets Mike Wallace, Joe Flacco's statistics improve and the Baltimore Ravens win games. I've been begging and pleading with the Miami Dolphins to realize this with Kenny Stills. Stop targeting Jarvis Landry! And start targeting Kenny Stills whenever possible. A year ago, I sat in front of this microphone and stated flatly that Kenny Stills is a more valuable asset to the Miami Dolphins than Jarvis Landry. And I've been mocked on YouTube ever since. Check out our YouTube channel. Just type in Roto Underworld and you can see hundreds of clips from past shows. And the best are the comments when you scroll down and you read. Oh, wow. (coughs) These people are not accustomed to listening to Matt Kelly. (laughs) They're either taking it way too seriously or completely missing the point. But look at the difference in the advanced efficiency metrics from Kenny Stills to Jarvis Landry. It's striking. Yards per target Kenny Stills, 8.9. 5.7 for Jarvis Landry. 5.7 yards per target? That's league bottom. Production premium, plus 25.7 for Kenny Stills, negative 5.7 for Jarvis Landry. The production premium is player profilers, fantasy points above or below expectation. When you target Kenny Stills, he scores more points than expected. Jarvis Landry, no surprise, scores less than expected. Target premium. How many points do you score on a percentage basis above or below the other receivers in your passing game on any given target? Kenny Stills plus 27%, Jarvis Landry negative 8.1%. I understand Jarvis Landry's role is different than Kenny Stills, but just because his role exists doesn't mean you have to constantly feed the player playing that role. The role Jarvis Landry plays in an offense is an auxiliary role. It's like a satellite back role. But when you compare the target share of the average NFL satellite back to Jarvis Landry, Jarvis Landry dominates them to an irrational extent. But then you look at the outcomes of the games, and when Miami feeds Jarvis Landry, they get blown out. When the Dolphins go downfield to Kenny Stills, they're competitive. Part of the reason is Kenny Stills runs a 4.39. Jarvis Landry runs a 4.65. Kenny Stills creates more separation. Kenny Stills delivers more splash plays. And ultimately, because of that, the team scores more points when Kenny Stills is targeted. This isn't difficult to understand. This is so simple to figure out. It's one of the reasons why, A, the Miami Dolphins have been so maddening for so many years, and B, I am perpetually frustrated with football fans who just don't understand the simplest possible concepts. Like in the offseason, it's a good idea to sign Olympic sprinter Marquise Goodwin. If for no other reason than he creates space, he's a field stretcher. He creates more space for those underneath. He forces opposing defenses to play safeties further from the line of scrimmage. That's a tactical advantage that Marquise Goodwin and Tyreek Hill and a handful of other elite NFL field stretchers bring to the table. That's why we came on and said the 49ers signing Marquise Goodwin was tactically sound, and now Marquise Goodwin finally has a quarterback capable of throwing downfield. Finally. And Marquise Goodwin's not just a burner, in quotes. Check out his profile on playerprofiler.com. Wow, right? Wow. Like, wow, wow. He's one of the most athletic players in the NFL, not just receiver, players. He has a 124.292nd percentile Spark X score, and that's despite failing in the power category of Spark. When it comes to speed, agility, explosiveness, very, very, very few players can compete. He's in the upper 90th percentile across all those workout metrics. Think about that. Who wouldn't want that player on your team, right? No surprise, Goodwin is now rewarding fantasy gamers with a need for speed. He scored 18 PPR fantasy points last week, and now he gets the Texans this week. He'll torch them as well, because no cornerbacks, especially the 33-year-old Jonathan Joseph, can run with Marquise Goodwin. And I'm excited about Jimmy Garoppolo. I am. I'm allowed to get excited about Jimmy Garoppolo. I was tempering expectations, because Garoppolo played in only a handful of games last season. He was exceptional in those games, passer rating well over 100, four touchdowns, zero interceptions. He was great. We all saw it. But very small sample. This first game from Jimmy Garoppolo was a critical indicator. He's a sneaky athlete, has that 1130 agility score, 67th percentile, above average throw velocity, broke out at a young age at Eastern Illinois, and he just looks like Tony Romo. His best comparable player on Player Profiler is Tony Romo, and it just makes sense. They both went to Eastern Illinois, similar stats, similar statures. They look like the same guy. Why can't Jimmy Garoppolo be Tony Romo? I don't know. Why not? And I have to tip my hat to the Jimmy Garoppolo Dynasty owners. I don't have any Jimmy Garoppolo in Dynasty. Just not patient enough. I'm trying to win every season, and I can't roster a player behind Tom Brady who plans to play until age 45. So those of you with the patience to roster Jimmy Garoppolo two years ago, a tip of the cap to you, sirs and madams. And you have to play Martavis Bryant this week after Juju Smith-Schuster was suspended. I understand that Martavis Bryant is never going to be efficient. Each and every year he has played the wide receiver position in the NFL, he hasn't been efficient. The catch rate has always been below 55%. Now, partly that's because the depth of target has been so deep. So you need to adjust the catch rate because the degree of difficulty on those catches is higher. Now, I understand that. But going back to his time at Clemson, Martavis Bryant has always been the dog that goes up to catch the Frisbee, and it hits him in the neck. That was the visual painted by Josh Hermsmeyer on the show. And it's true of Martavis Bryant going back to his time at Clemson, but he's going to be a starting receiver. And he has upper percentile size-adjusted athleticism. You take a guy with upper percentile size-adjusted athleticism, you put him in the starting lineup, with one of the NFL's signature downfield throwers in Ben Roethlisberger. And this is a player you need to play. He has a 1031, 94th percentile catch radius. You need to play Martavis Bryant. And Bryant caught another break. In addition to the Juju Smith suspension, Jimmy Smith one of the best outside cornerbacks in the league was suspended four games for performance-enhancing drugs. So ironically, Martavis Bryant will benefit from the suspensions of others in Week 14. So just play him. When all the forces come together to propel a player, you play him right? You have positive external force after positive external force, propelling a 6'4", 215-pound wide receiver with a 121.9 90th percentile Spark X score. You play him. You Don't question it. You don't think twice. You play him. You play him in Dynasty. You play him in Redraft. You play him in DFS. Play Martavis Bryant. And I think one of the other reasons why the explosive downfield threats are scoring more fantasy points lately is that so many cornerbacks are getting put on injured reserve and there are And there are only so many cornerbacks in the NFL with the requisite speed and athleticism to run with the fastest of the fast NFL field stretchers. I think that's an important factor. Cornerbacks are getting put on injured reserve at a record pace. Joe Hayden, Rashad Melvin, we mentioned Jimmy Smith out with the PD suspension, Janoris Jenkins, and when you go to playerprofiler.com's cornerback pages, you can see the second string cornerbacks across the NFL offer significantly degraded Speed, burst, and agility. The most athletic defensive backs typically rise up the depth chart, and it's truly crippling when they're lost for the season. Now, the New York Jets haven't lost any defensive backs. It just so happens that most of their cornerbacks aren't good. And because of that, you have to play Demarius Thomas. You might say, well, I thought Emmanuel Sanders was the number one receiver for the Denver Broncos. Uh, He was. He was before he experienced a high ankle sprain, and we've talked about what happens to players when they experience high ankle sprains. They're not the same. Emmanuel Sanders is not the same guy. Last three games, 3.5 fantasy points, 4.2 fantasy points, 3.1 fantasy points. He's been outside the top 70 in fantasy football for three straight weeks, and this is despite the Denver Broncos experiencing significant negative game script Forced to throw in the second half, which typically inflates wide receiver counting stats. Not the case with Emmanuel Sanders. That's a major indictment. That's why I'm playing Demarius Thomas this week against the Jets. Number one wide receivers have been shredding the Jets secondary in recent weeks. Week 11, Deshaun Jackson, 10 targets, 8 receptions, 82 yards. So, double-digit targets, high catch rate, lots of yards. Devin Funchess, 12 targets, 7 receptions, 108 yards. Tyreek Hill last week, (laughs) we talked about that performance, 185 yards and 2 touchdowns. So the Jets are either allowing an exceptionally high catch rate, over 100 yards, or multiple touchdowns. I believe Demarius Thomas will achieve one of those this week. So you need to push the button on Demarius Thomas this week. Get him in your lineup, even though he, like Emmanuel Sanders, has been underwhelming. He's just a healthy, better option among those Denver Broncos wide receivers. And when you talk about teams losing cornerbacks... No secondary has been more decimated than the Indianapolis Colts. I mean, they have no cornerbacks left. Literally, no cornerbacks are left on that Indianapolis Colts roster. So what does that mean? Oh, no. 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 No, 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 (laughs) no. Yeah, well. Well, no, no. Well, well. No, 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 no. Well, well. No, no, you can't. No, you can't. Well. I think it's time. I think it's time. To play a number one wide receiver who faces a decimated secondary in week 14. A player who's been highly inefficient this season. The least efficient wide receiver in the NFL, no less. And yet, I don't care. I'm playing him. Because I believe he will receive targets in a primary receiver capacity. And because of his exceptional athleticism, I believe he has an opportunity to translate those athletic gifts into on-field production. Not necessarily efficiency, maybe, maybe not. If he's efficient, look out, right? But we're talking 10 targets directed at a player with a 1028 90-second percentile catch radius, a 119.7, 88th percentile Spark X score on playerprofiler.com. I am talking, of course, about Zay Jones! Zay, it ain't so. I'm saying it. I'm saying it right now. I'm playing Zay Jones. I have to. How can you not? If you care about target share, if you care about athleticism, if you care about wide receiver cornerback matchups, Zay Jones will face Nate Hairston this week, player profiler's number 72 cornerback. Go to our player rankings, playerprofiler.com forward slash player dash rankings, click on seasonal and the cornerbacks tab, scroll down and keep scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling until you hit your first Colts defensive player. And that's Nate Hairston. Those are the reasons why I'm playing Zay Jones this week. And I'm not playing Jordan Matthews because like Emmanuel Sanders, Jordan Matthews isn't right. He can't be. He hasn't been right since he hurt his knee in Philadelphia. It's why the Eagles were so quick to trade him to Buffalo. He's damaged goods. There's so many players in the NFL named Matthews. There are multiple wide receivers named Matthews. I think Jordan Matthews should change his last name to Damaged. Jordan Damaged. If you tear up your knee and you continue to play on it, you'll never be the same. And I believe that's the case with Jordan Matthews. So we're playing Martavis Bryant. We're playing Zay Jones, the inefficient, athletic downfield threats. Oh, I can't wait for this to blow up in my face. But you don't get cute benching Adam Thielen. You can't. You can't do it. Going on the road to Carolina, this may be the most challenging week of the season for Adam Thielen, but it doesn't matter. You have to play him. Just recently, Robbie Anderson and Michael Thomas were fantasy WR1s back-to-back against Carolina. And Adam Thielen is matchup proof. So you can play Adam Thielen. That's about it. I won't be playing Case Keenum in DFS, even though he's treated us very well. You go to our lineup optimizer, the DFS Lineup Genius on playerprofiler.com. Check it out on Saturdays and Sundays. We crunch the numbers. We synthesize the news down to what matters and produce 10 GPP lineups and five optimal cash game lineups for both DraftKings and FanDuel. We've also lowered the price for all of our premium services on playerprofiler.com. For the month of December, the rankings and the lineup genius is only $10. You can get the lineup genius, the rankings, data analysis, defensive players, all for $25 for the month of December to preview the service if you're thinking about subscribing in 2018. So I'm off Keenum this week, but you're never going to get me off Thielen. But I love thinking about this Keenum to Thielen connection because it took both players five plus years to make it. Undrafted, forgotten players that are now living the American dream. And the funny thing is, Thielen and Keenum were good all along. At Minnesota State, Adam Thielen was utterly dominant. 45% college dominator. Isn't that what you want in a college receiver? But it was a run-first system, so scouts didn't take notice. And Thielen ended up at Minnesota State Mankato because in high school, he was conflicted about which sport he wanted to play at the college level, football or basketball. He was a Mr. Minnesota-level athlete that was actually hurt by his athletic gifts. I mean, it's a rare case that a high school player is hurt because he was such a versatile athlete that actually hurt Thielen in his quest to become a professional athlete one day. And Case Keenum was the truth in college. He's the NCAA's all-time passing yards leader with over 19,000 yards at Houston. But he was 6'1", he played in what scouts called a gimmick system, and he tore his ACL his junior season. So so we're talking about an injury-prone system quarterback who's too small. <laughs> just, just the perfect combination of cliche scout speak, punishing a professional prospect to the point he goes undrafted. How can the NCAA's all-time passing yards and passing touchdowns leader go undrafted? Is the NFL's scouting industrial complex doing what it does? Fail. And the funny thing is, Keenum's actually a sneaky good athlete as well. His agility score, 1115 79th percentile. So he's able to maneuver in the pocket. He's a tactical scrambler. And if you give Adam Thielen more time to get open, (laughs) he's always going to find a way to get open. The jab step. Jab to the end. Pivot out. Adam Thielen just gets open over and over and over and over and over and over again, Adam Thielen is suddenly one of the league's best receivers. And you thought, oh, after a hyper-efficient 2016, he couldn't possibly carry over that efficiency into 2017. Oh, but he has. He has. It's brilliant. It really is. Adam Thielen's QB rating when targeted is still well over 100, 105.4 this year after having one of the highest Marks last year 122.5. Last year, Adam Thielen was top five in every meaningful efficiency metric on playerprofiler.com. And he's back doing it again. Top 10 in contested catch rate this year, 55.6% on contested targets. He's catching more contested targets than he's not converting. (laughs) That's amazing. I love that about Adam Thielen. So he's getting open and he's also catching passes in contested situations. What's not to like? And Case Keenum looks like he belongs in a starting role. I mean, Case Keenum may be a backup caliber quarterback, but when you're surrounded by these weapons, an above-average pass-blocking offensive line, check out the protection rate for Case Keenum on playerprofiler.com. And the best wide receiver duo in football, Adam Thielen and Stephon Diggs, a top-10 tight end in Kyle Rudolph, one of the league's best satellite backs, and definitely the most explosive, Jarek McKinnon, there's no way to properly evaluate Case Keenum. You can't evaluate him in a vacuum. You're now evaluating Case Keenum in the context of that Vikings offense. And because that's how Vikings coaches are evaluating Case Keenum, as well as members of the media and sports fans, he's not going anywhere. He looks like he belongs in a starting role because he does belong in a starting role in the context of the Vikings offense. He can't elevate players around him. That's not who Case Keenum is. Of course, he's not Aaron Rodgers. But in the context of the Vikings offense, he's a starter. So I think he will remain the starter in 2018. I think Case Keenum is a dynasty buy. Check out the advanced completion percentage metrics. True completion percentage, which factors in receiver drops. 71% on playerprofiler.com. That's top 10. On play action. On deep balls, he's top five. He's even completing 38% of his pressured passes, which is top 15 in the NFL. So in every measure of accuracy that we have, he's above average. And the team is 10-2. and And you all love when quarterbacks win games. So Case Keenum's not going anywhere. You can still acquire Case Keenum at a heavy discount in Dynasty because he doesn't project to be the long-term starter, but I think that right now you have to act as if he is that. He's been effective in every facet of the game. He's excellent on play fakes. He's excellent downfield. You have to just act as if he's excellent. Two undrafted forgotten players. Are now out in front leading a 10 2 Vikings team into the playoffs. And I love it. I just, I love this. I'm also hesitant about starting Stephon Diggs against Carolina because the the matchup is challenging and we need to come to, and I've come to terms with the fact that Adam Thielen is the number one option in Minnesota. It's not Stephon Diggs. I can't believe I'm saying it, but I'm saying it. It's crazy. And the number one receiver in Indianapolis remains T.Y. Hilton. And you need to play T.Y. Hilton this week. The two underwhelming receivers that have been frustrating fantasy owners all season need to be played in Week 14, Demarius Thomas and T.Y. Hilton. You need to close your eyes and push the button. Why? Because Buffalo has no one to cover T.Y. Hilton this week. It looks like Tredavious White will miss the game with a concussion thanks to the drunk polar bear known as Rob Gronkowski, also known as the Vodka Centaur. What the fuck is wrong with Rob Gronkowski? I mean, please. I mean, please. I'm a Patriots fan, and I like Rob Gronkowski less and less every week that goes by. I become more and more tired of his behavior, behavior that no other player in the NFL other than maybe Tom Brady could get away with. Just flip that incident on its head. Instead of Rob Gronkowski shoulder-spearing Tredavious White, make it Tredavious White shoulder-spearing a defenseless Danny Amendola. You know Tredavious White's getting two-plus games for that. For no other reason than Rob Gronkowski's Rob Gronkowski. That's just Gronk being Gronk. It's Gronk being Gronk. No, it's not Gronk being Gronk. It's the human being, Rob Gronkowski, causing brain trauma in another human being named Tredavious White. The star power should not affect the punishment for on-field behavior, but that's the rationalization for the single game suspension, and it's just maddening to me. And when I tweet that, the buzzards come back with, oh, don't make it about race. I didn't say anything about race. Yes, race is a factor, just like coaching is a factor in player performance. But it's not the only factor. And I'm perpetually surprised on social media by the fact that the knuckle-dragger sports fans follow me. I thought I had chased you all away with torches, protecting myself from you with an electric fence. Waste my time accusing me of being a social justice warrior, but didn't say social justice warrior. Hit me with the acronym SJW. I didn't even know what that means. I had to look it up. Sounds good to me. I'm a fan of justice. So if you want to hit me with some pejorative euphemism that imply I'm a warrior for justice, then go ahead. Fuck do I care? The words you say on Twitter don't matter. I don't care what you say about me on social media. And it leads me to question the collective intelligence of my followers. That you would just run off and assume, oh, here's Matt Kelly making a point about this one aspect of society and this one aspect only, even though he didn't mention that aspect at all. Like, fuck you! If anything, I'm most interested in the dynamic created when a brand name player... Finds himself in conflict with a player with very little brand recognition. The brand name leader versus the anonymous soldier on the football field. That's interesting. Those are the conversations I'm trying to spark on social media. You dolts. Because we could push it out to the extremes. What if Vontez Burfict shoulder spears Tom Brady just as Rob Gronkowski shoulder speared Tredavious White? Then what? How many games does Burfict get? Lifetime ban? I <laughs> mean, Tom Brady must be treated like a Fabergé egg. He's the franchise. He's the league. But is it fair to suspend perfect multiple games for the same offense that Rob Gronkowski perpetrates? Well, that's the question. I think it's an interesting question. Is it fair? Is that justice? I mean, are you interested in fairness and justice or not? Are you only interested in celebrating celebrities? Because if that's what's driving your moral compass when consuming football, celebrating celebrities, then we have different sensibilities. When you experienced the news that Rob Gronkowski would be suspended for only one game, did you just shrug your shoulders? Because I didn't. My first thought was, I'm sorry for Tredavious White that he didn't get justice in this instance. I wasn't thinking, oh, this sucks for my fantasy team have to miss one game was hoping he wouldn't get suspended at all and this is the second time in a week that i've been hit with this sjw acronym moniker it happened when i compared the eli manning benching to the tyrod taylor benching oh yes because this week i don't think you should play Sterling Shepard, no. I mean, I get it. The Cowboys will face off against the Giants and the return of Eli Manning, a man whose face looks like it's being controlled by tiny aliens. I get it. It's a feel-good story. And playing Sterling Shepard in what looks to be a friendly matchup on paper feels right, but football games are not played on paper. They're played on computers. And Sterling Shepard will face off frequently against Chidobe Awuze this week, and that's a problem. The Dallas Cowboys secondary of Week 14 is not the same as the Dallas Cowboys secondary of Week 7, Week 8, Week 9, Week 10. Because of the presence of Chidobe Awuze, he changes everything. Based on the advanced efficiency metrics, Chidobe Awuze was a top-five corner last week against Washington. He has a plus-62 coverage rating, which, if that qualified, would be top five among NFL cornerbacks. He's already risen into our top 25 NFL cornerbacks. Even though he's only played in a handful of games, he's been exceptional. So let me get this straight. Eli Manning will start in a division game against the Dallas Cowboys and their improving secondary. And you're excited to play Sterling Shepard? I'm just not. I think Sterling Shepard is the ultimate sucker play in DFS this week. I think he has both a low ceiling and a low floor. But because of his salary and projected target share, the big DFS enthusiasts will be tempted to play Sterling Shepard, and that will be a mistake. I mean, Not only has Chidobe Awuze been hugely efficient this year, he's incredibly athletic, a 106.4, 89th percentile height-adjusted speed score. And look at burst, look at agility. He's 65th percentile or above across the board in all the workout metrics. He was excellent at Colorado, and he's translating his athletic gifts into smothering coverage at the NFL level. That's not a cornerback matchup you want to mess with this week. It's just not. Look elsewhere. I also don't think Eli Manning is necessarily an upgrade over Geno Smith. Geno Smith played well last week. He didn't deserve to get benched. Eli Manning is starting for public relations purposes only. That does not instill confidence. And thinking back to that Eli Manning benching, I just was shocked by the volume of the outrage. I mean, since when are athletes on rebuilding, tanking franchises owed extra starts, even though they're not playing well? I don't understand this. This was not owed to Joe Namath. This was not owed to Joe Montana. Why is it owed to Eli Manning? Since when? How did it come to be that Eli Manning is the most celebrated quarterback in NFL history? Because that's what you have to be to instill the ferocious response against Ben McAdoo in the wake of Eli Manning being told that he wouldn't finish the Giants' Week 13 matchup, that the Giants wanted to see what they had in Geno Smith. Eli Manning cried in front of his locker, and sports media gas bags and sports writers around the country began weeping themselves and hitting the all-caps button on on their keyboards, sending digitized shocked outrage after digitized shock outrage onto the World Wide Web, and I remain befuddled by that reaction. But 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 Eli Manning won the Giants two Super Bowls. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. The defense won that 2007 Super Bowl. You want to give one guy credit for 2007? Give it to Michael Strahan, not Eli Manning. The 2007 Giants won the championship with their defense. Just like the 2000 Ravens, no one was weeping over the benching of Trent Dilfer. Soon after the Ravens won the championship, the Buccaneers won the championship with their defense. No one was weeping over the benching of Brad Johnson, and no one would weep over the inevitable benching of Joe Flacco one day. But yes, Eli Manning did play exceptional in that second Super Bowl championship. I can't deny it. 65% completion percentage, 7.48 yards per attempt nine touchdowns, one interception, passer rating over 100. Eli Manning led that team to a Super Bowl. He did. He did lead them to one Super Bowl. As far as I can tell, Eli Manning's reputation is built on one hot postseason run. A hot postseason run just like the one Joe Flacco enjoyed as well as Colin Kaepernick. And if Joe Flacco had joined the Ravens a few years earlier, he, like Eli Manning, would have two Super Bowls and the exact same career. Identical. There's no difference. Look at their career stats. Eli Manning has an 83.8 passer rating. Joe Flacco, an 83.9 passer rating. You're up in arms over Joe fucking Flacco getting benched. What the fuck is the sports world coming to? That's what I'm talking about when I compare Eli Manning to Tyrod Taylor. The volume of the outrage. Because I keep hearing, oh, well, everyone disagreed with Tyrod Taylor getting benched. Well, A, no, not everyone. And B, not nearly as loudly. We talked about since when are athletes owed the ability to start extra games. Even when the team is losing and they're not playing well? Well, since when is it okay to bench a far superior player in Tyrod Taylor for an obviously inferior player in Nathan Peterman midseason when your team is a playoff contender? Since when is that a thing? (laughs) And since when do we not believe in second chances for athletes like Geno Smith? Geno Smith absolutely deserves a second chance. Compare Geno Smith's first two seasons in New York to Eli Manning's first two seasons in New York. Geno Smith was marginalized after his first two seasons. As a rookie, 66.5 passer rating. In his second year, a 77.5 passer rating. Look at Eli Manning. In his rookie season, 55.4 passer rating. The next season, 75.9 passer rating. So in each of his first two seasons, Geno Smith's passer rating was better than Eli Manning's. And what was Geno Smith's reward? He was banished by the Jets after those two seasons in which he performed better than Eli Manning did through his first two seasons. And now the position is, well, Eli Manning deserves these starts because of Super Bowls from five years ago, rather than Geno Smith deserving a second chance. How is that possible? Look at Case Keenum. He's on his third chance with his third franchise, and he's 10-2, and two, and he's a Super Bowl contender. How many chances have we given Jay Cutler? But I'm not even talking about how race can influence decisions in sports. Or am I?